Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. This is episode 84 and um, this is a recording of an event that took place at Unity Books on the 14th of October and um, it's an event that's called Renter Rights and um, in it, Amon Mara and Murdoch Stevens talk to Dr. Eleanor Chisholm. Um, Amon and Murdoch both published books recently. Amon's book is called 2,000 Feet Above Worry Level and is amazing. And Murdoch's book is Rat King Landlord, which is also amazing. Two outstanding books. And it was a really great framing of these books um, and the choice of the person they spoke to. Um, Dr. Eleanor Chisholm is a qualitative and historical researcher with a particular interest in housing, urban form, power, and the social determinants of health. So um, it was really great to sort of um, have that focus focus on renting and housing, um, especially um, this was recorded quite close to the election, which was really great as well. Um, I owe an immense thanks to um, Amon, who um, gave me this recording and mastered it, and it just sounds so good. Wow, it sounds really good. And um, yeah, I also want to thank Unity Books as well um, for continuing to support um, these writing events and yeah selling wonderful books and being incredible so um i hope you enjoy this podcast and yeah thanks heaps amon murdoch and eleanor thanks cool thanks for joining us today we're really excited to have murdoch stevens author of rat king landlord amon mara author of two thousand feet above worry level and eleanor chisholm Dr. Eleanor Chisholm, expert in rental rights and healthy housing, an important thing, particularly in Wellington. Murdoch's a doctor as well, publisher at Lawrence and Gibson, and VUP, I'm sure there's some of the clan here today, published this wonderful book. Um, you're going to be hearing about all kinds of interesting things that will pertain to your home and good literature today. And there might be a little bit of time for questions if you prove to not be too shy at the end of it, and then they'll be signing. All right, give a big warm hand for these guys. Koto, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for coming to this beautiful place. Um, I'm um, very honoured to be here. Um, I've got a big interest in, in rental housing and the potential to make it better. And both of these books um, talk about life in rental housing. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for me to ask, um, to ask them more about, about this. And we're going to um, start with each of the authors is going to read a, a brief excerpt of their books, both of which were published recently. And then we'll have um, a few questions. And then you guys can ask questions as well. And we'll wrap up about quarter past one. Okay, um, who wants to start? No, no, paper, scissors, rock. That's yeah, one. Okay. Yeah. okay. Well, but do you go one, two, three? Oh. Murdoch's one. Okay. I mean, I have to go first. <laughs> I mean, hey. I thought as the chair we should right. establish. <laughs> fine, they've obviously done this before. <laughs> you got to go with a rock first off, right? Everyone's they go the scissors. The first one is always a rock. It's an easy win. All right, this is from a little bit into the book. Um, I guess it doesn't need any explanation. That's why I chose it. I chose my best rodent killing pants. The ones that tapered and would make it nearly impossible for the rat to climb up and into my underpants. I paused at Freddy's room, but they weren't speaking, and it appeared that the light was off. Still no breaking of glass, nor police sirens, nor was there the sound of a maimed rat, that low squealing of fury. 
Rat traps barely do the job unless you splash out for an expensive one. And even then you've got to use ritzy peanut butter to get the Wellington ones to bite. A regular trap would just catch the rat and, if you were lucky, break some of its bones. One time in ten it would get them right on the neck and they'd die, but mostly you were left to do the job yourself. The trap had flipped over when it closed. I hadn't set it in plain view, but now it was clearly to be seen by the foot of the fridge. It wasn't moving, but the end of a tail was sticking out. I flipped the trap over and jumped back. I wasn't scared of a dead rat. I just didn't want to get bitten by it if it wasn't dead. Sometimes these traps just catch the rat's tail, and it runs around with a damn thing dangling. The kill was clean and perfect, but it had killed a mouse, not the rat. The creature seemed so small in the big trap, and yet also so peaceful. Beneath a pink nose were a pair of adorable teeth, tucked up into a closed mouth. The tiny pink face seemed so gentle and innocent, like a baby once it had finally accepted the gift of sleep. I wondered if I could throw it into the compost bin. If meat isn't supposed to go in, then surely dead animals aren't. I picked up the trap, took it into the garden, and let the mouse fall to the grass. Still no sound of breaking glass and class warfare from the city. I grabbed a shovel and shimmied the mouse onto it, then flung it over the back fence and into the long grass of the town bout. Valet, little guy. Back inside, my bare feet cool and damp from the lawn, I could hear Freddie and Dean. I wanted to break some glass, but as I walked down the hall, it became clear from the squeaking that the sounds weren't coming from Freddie's room, but the empty room one door down. I paused and listened. I didn't want the sound to be Freddie and Dean, but at least it wouldn't have been an unknown. Had I also set a trap in that empty room? And there was the sound again. I went back outside to fetch the shovel, then strode to the spare room's door. Should I wake the other flatmates? No. I told them I'd take care of it, and they wouldn't need to worry, and maybe that could still be the case. There were more sounds, louder, annoying, clawing, hungry set of noises. I flung the door open and threw on the light. The rats sat atop an old woolen jersey, feasting on a bag of dates. Empty potato chip and biscuit packets were littered around it. It had made a nest, and it did not like being discovered. It neither ran nor cowered, but reared up, hissing like a cat. The sound was as vicious as anything I'd ever heard, but it was the lightly downed pink of its under armpit that stayed with me. Seeing that soft spot, not the ornery black hair of its coat, or the obscene chunk of its tail, that told me that the rat was ready for battle. I had disturbed it, and it was ready for a fight to the death. I retreated. Yeah. Slamming the door to the rat's room and fleeing to my own, I wedged an old towel into the space beneath my door to prevent anything getting into my room at night. I sat up listening for hours upon hours, but there were no more sounds. I must have fallen asleep because I eventually woke up. Thank you, Murda. An excerpt from Rat King Landlord. And now we have Amon reading an excerpt. Yeah, this is uh, the beginning of the story Flatmates, which is the most, most renty story in the book. It was 7.30 in the morning when Clara woke me up, bashing on a cowbell outside my room, yelling, Flat meeting, repeatedly. I rolled out of bed and found a t-shirt on the floor and pulled it over my body. I found a pair of shorts under my bed and put them on as I left my bedroom. What the hell is this about, Clara? Faith said as she was standing at her bedroom door in her pyjamas. Just get out here, Clara said. Duncan too. I came out of my room and sat on the couch. Clara was standing up. She was wearing a grey skirt, white shirt, black stockings and black leather shoes with a slight heel. I hadn't seen her in these clothes before because she always came home via the gym and I hadn't gotten up this early in a long time. Wait here, she said. Don't you dare go back to bed. 
Faith led Duncan into the lounge. He hadn't put on any clothes over the tattered underwear he slept in. He had bed hair, but he always had bed hair. He had a depression beard. He had so much body hair, it was a wonder he ever needed clothes. He sat on the couch she'd pulled Ugly Blanket, the ugliest blanket in the world, over him. <laughs> We'd named it Ugly Blanket, the ugliest blanket in the world, because it was exactly that. It was an old polar fleece blanket with bright pink and aqua patterns of round splotches and cartoonish flower shapes that barely fitted together. It was too thin to be warm and too small to cover an entire body, but it had become a permanent fixture on the couch. We discussed getting rid of it, but since no one else in the world would ever want it, it felt cruel. <laughs> What's happening? Duncan asked. Clara appeared in the lounge again, holding our toothbrush mug. Why the hell do we have twelve toothbrushes? There are only four of us living here. Three, I said. Is this really why you got us up, Clara? Faith said. Clara put the mug down on the coffee table. I'm tired of this. I can't live in filth anymore. There are only three of us living here, I said. Plus Duncan, Clara said. Duncan doesn't live here, Faith said. Duncan pretty much lives here, Clara said. No, we talked about it and decided we weren't ready to move in together, Duncan said. <laughs> he yawned. Faith, I said, does Duncan live with us? Yes, how have you missed this, Clara said. He's been here every day for months. <laughs> no, he doesn't, Faith said. Duncan lives with his dad. Duncan's dad, the one in Palmerston North, Clara said. If Duncan is going to be living here, we should renegotiate rent, I said. I don't have time for this, Clara said. Everyone grab your toothbrush. I need to get to work. I thought you woke us up for a flat meeting, I said. No, I woke you up to clean up these stupid toothbrushes. Clara looked at the mug. Grab your toothbrush. We're throwing the rest out. She took a green toothbrush from the mug. It, used be it looked barely used. Faith found her pink brush. How, did we How do we get so many brushes, she said. Duncan looked at the mug for a while and then pulled out a worn blue toothbrush with di dried toothpaste around the handle. What the hell, I said. That's my toothbrush. <laughs> I looked into the mug and saw a very similar toothbrush that was, slightly, that was a slightly lighter shade of blue. That must be your one there. I'm pretty sure this is my one, he said. I'm like 65% sure. That's not sure enough to use a toothbrush, I said. <laughs> well, I was more sure than that up until a minute ago, Duncan said. Faith and Clara laughed. You don't even live here, I said. Exactly, he doesn't live here, Faith said. You all need to stop pretending Duncan doesn't live here, Clara said. Duncan yawned. He should be paying rent, I said. He can't afford to pay rent, Faith said. He doesn't have a job. I don't have a job, I said. Yeah, but you're doing okay, Faith said. You're not missing rent. But what about our bills, I said. He uses our shower and the internet. I don't really shower that much, Duncan said. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you, Amon. Um, feels very familiar. Um, so I'll start with a question for Murdoch. Your book's about many things, but one of them is a revolution, a movement for change to make things better for the non-landowners, the renters and the homeless. What do you see the connection between writing novels and creating social change? Um. I mean, it's it's tough, right? Because we're surrounded, we're sort of sitting in here. I guess the default position in New Zealand, or at least my default position, is to not overclaim things. You know, it's a fairly unpakiha thing to do to be like, yeah, this book is going to lead to absolute changing of this sort of renter's relationship to property and government. Like we, you know, we sort of come from this base position where we probably wouldn't claim that. And yet, I was just looking around. There are all these items around us, right? Like, with pages in them. We're surrounded by these books. 
And these books are full of ideas and imagination and new ways of talking about things. Um, and so it kind of makes me think, okay, well, there must be some sort of relationship between ideas and language and change. I'm not sure if novels do that, like maybe it's more the politics section or the philosophy mm. section. Um, yeah, I mean, f for this particular book, for my particular book, I felt that it came out of a place of desperation that uh, renters and uh, activists have been trying to do things for years around the renting crisis and the entire property crisis and nothing's happened and nothing's going to happen and even this incredibly articulate Prime Minister has ruled out such simple things as a capital gains tax. So this for me came out of this point of desperation at the end, not that it's going to lead to any change but maybe if we can think through or propose something outrageous um, that might lodge itself in people's minds. Um, yeah, I guess that's how I see the relationship for for this book and then more broadly. Like it's not a direct thing, right? No one, mm. I don't think, do you think, is your novel gonna change? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I don't think so, but I think that works of fiction do have a power that nonfiction don't because uh, they kind of take you by surprise, right? Like if, you, if you've chosen to read a book about you know, housing in New Zealand, you probably are already coming at it from an angle. You're not like, well, I know nothing about the subject. I'll, I'll edu educate myself. Like most people don't read nonfiction books for that. They want something to confirm their viewpoint, but reading something that puts you through someone else's lived experience might soften you to the idea that things have to change. So like in both of our books, I think you see the struggle of people who are renting and people who are, you know, having bad jobs or really precarious work and if people read that maybe they'll start to understand like oh actually it isn't as easy as it was 30 years ago to just get a 40 hour a week job and save up for a deposit so yeah my book's going to change the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I think they plant seeds in people's minds and they bring people to a place they weren't expecting um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about that, Amon. There's, it, um, it's a very funny book, it's entertaining, it's moving, but it's also, there's some really big issues in there that are more in the background. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and also how, about the decision to put those in the background and the narrator's experiences in the foreground and about how this housing and job insecurity are impacting on young people? Yeah, so I, I really didn't want to write an overtly political book, uh, not because I dislike those books, but just I thought that wasn't the book that this was. Uh, but I did want to write a book about like the impacts of politics. And I was actually quite lucky that somebody else used the word late, late capitalism in the blurb, so like I didn't have to <laughs> tell push people in that direction myself. Um, William Brandt came up with that, so that was really good. Uh, but it's, yeah, I I did really want to look at things on a personal level for, like, what basically economics uh, has has done to, to people's lives. Because um, yesterday there was an article on the spin-off that um, wasn't about my book, but it mentioned me as someone who was really good at writing about inequality. And I, um, I never really thought that that was the case, because I don't think this is about really about inequality because I think this is 
sort of a thing that, well, the narrator of my book and his family are like definitely middle class. Like he comes in a position where his mum can move cities and buy a house and uh, they can, you know, pay off his debts and do things like that. And so I think even though life is kind of a struggle for him in lots of ways, he's never going to be completely out. He's got, he has these safety nets. And, um, but it's interesting that someone like in this position is still, you know, still cannot find a 40 hour week stable job and still can't find a place to live that doesn't change every year and doesn't, can't like form these sort of stable relationships because you're always moving, right? So that's kind of what I wanted to show in the book rather than like specifically talk about, you know, our tax system or, um, because I could, I, I, maybe the next book will be about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, the, the characters in, in both of the books are in your different levels of precarious housing situations. And I've got a quote from Murdoch's book. He talks about the, um, the feeling of being cornered, of knowing that I would never be at home here, ever. Not in this house, not in this city, not in this country, not while the landlords and politicians in assisted houses were first for capital gains and only second or never for us to live in. So this feeling of, um, this idea of feeling at home in rental housing, um, what's your experience of home and rental housing and how did that inform the book? What would it take to feel at home in rental housing here? It's such a tough question of, of home, right? Like it makes me think of family, makes me think of the, the homes I grew up in with my parents. Um, and as someone who doesn't have kids and doesn't plan on ever having kids, um, that, that notion of home actually coming from something else um, feels kind of obscure. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely have had some really lovely flats, but I don't think I could call them homes because there's always that sense that even the best, like we had one wonderful landlord, um, but there was always, you know, it was so good that we actually became worried that they were going to kick us out or move us on. And they eventually did, and we had to leave that place. So there's always that sort of sense of, like sometimes it's better if it's absolutely terrible because you want to leave, and then it's not so much of a bad news if you get kicked out. Um, I don't think... I mean, in this country, it's hard. I think it's hard to feel at home anyway because it's a colony, um, and I don't particularly feel at home here. It's a bit like that Gang of Four song, um, "At Home He Feels Like a Tourist." I sort of feel like that in this country anyway. So I almost think it'll probably take some kind of um, terminal illness before I feel at home, before I can reflect back and, you know, actually think, "Oh well, that's it. This is as home as it's going to get." Um, you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of great legislation that's going through for a lot of people, and probably most people aren't as neurotic about this kind of thing as me, and maybe we should be looking out for families and all that who really want um, that stability and might want to create a home. Um, so there's great groups like Renters United who are pushing all sorts of great things. Um, but personally, I think we'd have to abolish property management companies, um, put rental uh, rent controls in, I mean, there's a ton of models internationally, probably a ton of um, public housing that we don't have. Um, but again, models throughout the world where this could be done. So maybe maybe I would confound myself and, and feel at home if all of this changed. But, you know, I'm a neurotic writer, so <laughs> it's probably not going to happen anyway. Yeah. 
and in, from what I've what I've read, you know, homeowners do feel that sense of home, but also public tenants because they have a bit more security um, mm. in terms of they can stay in their tenancy while they remain eligible. So it's it's not perfect, but it does show that renters can also be at home in their community yeah. for sure. Um, and this this situation of people are living with other adults, sometimes with their the children of other adults as well for longer in New Zealand because of the housing crisis. Um, so Eivor, how does this impact on society, on, on the lives of your characters, and maybe even on writers? Yeah, well, I think one big thing is when we're talking about home, it's like, I, it's often about who we're living with, and I don't think I've had like a single year of flatting since I moved out of home like 12 years ago, where it's had the same people living there for you know, an entire 12 months, like, it has always changed a little bit throughout that time, and, and so there's kind of this ever, ever change of, like, who, who you're actually living with, you know, it can take a little while to be comfortable around other people, like, sometimes it happens really fast, sometimes it can take, you know, months of, of living with someone where you're trying to, like, work out how to, you know, wake up at the same time and who gets to, you know, use the toaster first or those kinds of things. Um, so, like, it is it is always changing. So there's no... Even if you can stay in a place for a long time, it's not really stable. And I think that's also the case with work. Like, I think more and more people are going on, like, either fixed-term contracts or they're contractors or they have part-time hours or they have to work multiple jobs or they you know, don't really have any hours and they're just trying to piece things together. And that also makes, like, any sort of stability really hard. And it's like, how can you make a plan for years in the future? And, like, how can you make a plan to even, like, you know, pay off a mortgage if you don't have regular ongoing work? Like, that's something which a lot of people just just do not have access to. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And... So I wondered, and this is, um, I really loved these um, little moments in, in both of the books about these, these subtle interactions with the other people you're living with, these, um, these intimate relationships that are formed. And um, I just wondered how, how having those kind of relationships, living with others, um, has challenged and supported both of you as writers, as artists. Murdoch, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, I've had magnificent flatmates, some of my best friends. Um, I don't even know if they started out as flatmates and became friends, or were friends and then became flatmates. Um, it's such a unique, fantastic thing to be able to live with um, other people and have these relationships of care with them. Um, and it's it sort of feels like a very specifically New Zealand thing. Maybe there are even other countries I've lived in overseas um, with a similar background, it doesn't seem as quite in, um, ingrained into the culture. Um, and I've seen that as well. And, you know, it's in sometimes if I've been flatting with someone who isn't used to this culture and they're only flatting because everything else is too expensive, they would really rather be living alone. And you really see that kind of difference in culture where people don't want to share space, don't want to share food with one another. Um, 
I haven't ridden that much in flats. This was the first book I've actually been able to write in a house in New Zealand with other people around. Um, and mostly it was by like, closing my windows and ignoring everyone. <laughs> um, so I think, f well, actually, this one was conceived of in the kitchen of a flat with a flatmate, just, um, yeah. Talking at the end of the day about our landlord. Um, so it's a place up in Mount Victoria, and we were sort of amazed at this. And I know, yeah. And it's one that a lot of people have lived in from a friend group over the years. And it was one of those situations where there's a property management company and everyone kept trying to find out who our landlord actually was so that we could approach them about, I can't even remember what it was in the property. And we got to this point where we realized they didn't want to be known. Um, they wanted to go through the property management company and wanted to be anonymous. Um, and then one of the flatmates had just gone to take the compost out and saw a giant rat in the compost heap. And we thought, well, maybe that's our landlord. <laughs> and why not? Um, and so this book actually came out of that beautiful, you know, like Tuesday evening, like fighting over pole position on the stovetop, um, talking about, well, what if? What if that happened? Yeah. So I guess my flatmates have been brilliant. Um, not always like in the same room or giving that kind of feedback, but at least in creating ideas and sharing ideas. Yeah. I think I, even if I could live alone, I'm not sure if I'd want to. Yeah, I, um, there are these, these whole books which are about the, the writing desks of writers. And, you know, ex-famous author built a hut in his garden and goes there every morning at 4am. And just this kind of fan, um, fascination people have with writers' habits, which is just not, not feasible if you're sort of um, on the move. Um, and so it is... Yeah, it's it's something that interested me. Um, and would you, would you like to have any thoughts on the on writing as a renter? Yeah, so I wrote this book in like lots of places. Uh, like a lot of it was written at the university library or the library over there, uh, which I'd I'd go to to write. Uh, a lot of it was written in bed late at night. Um, almost none of it was written. In my desk in my on my desk in my room because it's just like always too messy uh, a lot of it was written in the kitchen table I moved to my mum's house for a bit to write um, some of it and yeah a lot of, and then some of it would be writing at friends house with other friends around would all kind of be sitting with our laptops and helping each other with their with each other's projects as well so mm. yeah it was written in a lot of places I've never developed a habit with writing which I think you know, I would really like to do because it'd be really nice to be able to like, you know, go and sit in a place and think this is work time, uh, but that's never really happened with me. Um, I'm trying really hard for that to happen at the moment, but it's it's not. But um, I also kind of agree with Murdoch where like I think even if I wasn't forced to be flatting, I probably would still like to be living in a similar arrangement. I really like how um, living with someone creates the sort of intimate relationship which is really rare in adulthood uh and like and it's quite strange because like there are people who i was like very very close to living with and then who have basically disappeared from my life like and often quite fast and i think yeah outside of like a romantic relationship or sort of a best friend that's around for a long time you don't you don't get this sort of really close intimacy with um other people and most of my flats that I've lived in have kind of been this environment where it's been 
you know nice and we can communicate and we can actually live together like whether that's through sharing food or if it's just through like hanging out but I've also like been in flats or my flats have sometimes turned into this place where everyone just goes to their room after you know after they have eaten or they like you know take turns to use the kitchen so they like and try and just try and avoid each other and that makes you like I feel like that makes your life so small because it makes your your home just your bedroom and um and nothing else quite feels like somewhere where you're comfortable just being in and yeah that that sucks especially when you're paying so much for it it's like you're paying 250 dollars a week like and living in a room that's like maybe three times the size of your bed and that's the only place you actually feel relaxed and comfortable like sucks <laughs> yeah. yep um Murdoch, I wasn't sure if I'd ask it, but you've already given away that potentially a landlord could be a rat. So I just wanted to ask about about rats. So, um, <laughs> so what? Um, in one summer in the novel in Wellington, rats overrun the city, um, and even start owning property. Um, why? Why rats? And how does this tell us more about that? It was kind of tricky using a rat as a figure because, like, throughout history, um, to make a class or a race of people seem unworthy of living, you would compare them to something which is the worst thing imaginable, and often that's the rat. Um, so there's a huge history of, of racial stereotyping around rats. Um, and I thought I'd just see if I could get in trouble by... Um, by making the rat. You know, there are like fascinating tensions in this country. Um, you know, all the stuff around banning foreign ownership and some of the prejudice that's lying behind, um, well, some of the prejudice and some of the rights that are lying behind these, um, the sort of accusations and decisions that get made about ownership. So I, I thought it would be fun to sort of play with um, that idea and try and not get myself in trouble by. Um, <laughs> by writing something that someone accuses me of anti-Semitism or anti, I don't know, whatever. There's, you know, there is a sort of, I don't know. Uh, Jealousy of hard work. That's what you'll be yeah. accused of. It's uh, like, <laughs> well, resentment, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I mean, it's a subtext in the book as well, but there's, I mean, there's a lot about animal rights as well that I wanted to kind of sneak in there and the, the feeling of persecution of this, this little creature, um, and particularly amongst fairly liberal people who don't want to kill and eat animals, and yet you know, sometimes you have to get rid of, um, I don't know, a mosquito or a fly or a little mammal that's eating all your food. So there, it sort of felt like a rat was, well, one that was already in a compost, so you know, it's already there. <laughs> Yeah, but on that other hand, it felt like it was at this interesting nexus of um, of prejudice. Um, yeah. Of prejudice, but also like, I don't know, this sort of... This position to try and talk about the rights of different groups to one another um, and to get into some tangles in the book and have different characters react uh, in strange ways to it. I mean, there's also sort of like a gendered aspect to the animal in the book, but I'm not going to give that away because <laughs> I want people to, um, to read it. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and you should. Um, so Amon, I'm going to ask um, one more question and then open up to you guys, so start thinking. But Amon, I wanted to ask, for the characters in this book, 
what does hope look like? What does a good future look like? Yeah, so uh, I think one thing with this is like, there's no real mention of of them, like, like I don't think they can comprehend like owning property. Like, I, and the, so the final final chapter or story in this book kind of is about, you know, a, a future where he's feeling like he's doing pretty well. Uh, and, you know, in this future, he's renting a big room in a house rather than a small room. And he's, you know, he's working three or four jobs. And that's good because he's, you know, got enough money and he, he can put, you know, some of the money from jobs like into savings. So he's not living week to week. And he's like, you know, he's budgeting really well. So he's like buying chicken breasts on special and freezing them and doing all these types of things. And it's all the stuff that I think people are told, like like young people are told that they should be doing in order to like, you know, better themselves. It's like exercising, uh, working harder, you know, getting a second job or a third job. It's uh, making sure your like time is spent valuably, uh, saving money because he like, you know, purposely will catch the bus off peak rather than on peak and he'll, he's gone to a, like a lower phone bill and, and those sorts of things. And it's like, even with doing all those sorts of things, which just, you know, I tried to make it sound just like exhausting and he's like every sort of minute of his time is considered like whether it's wasted or or um like used well. But that's kind of what he thinks is, is doing really well. It's like suddenly he's on top of everything. Uh and that's kind of like as far as it gets in terms of like hope for this. It's like suddenly not living week to week, working all the time, having a big room in a flat. Yeah. Are there any questions from the audience for our, our authors? Eva Corlett. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, well, if there's no questions, I can... Um, I'll, I'll potentially... Do you guys have questions for each other? Yeah, well, I think one thing that I thought when reading Murdoch's book is, like, there was a lot of, like, when I was reading it, it reminded me a lot of my book in a, in a lot of ways, and I feel like, that, like, one of the, the main differences was, like, the focus of it, because I think, yeah, mine was, um, like, quite narrowly focused in on, sort of, a life where yours was you know, it just kept getting bigger, like, as the, the events occurred, kind of spread around the city, and, like, even though it did focus on this flat, it was, like, lots of flatmates who all kind of had their own stories and things. And did you find that hard to, like, make sure to hold all of those things in at once when you were writing, like, have the, like, political and the, like, personal and the, like, you know, the relationships and the characters, all of those things all happening in focus? Yeah. I don't think I found it hard. This was uh, like quite a strange book compared to other things that I've written. Um, it was kind of, I don't know, I write in a strange way. I don't know how you write, but I write in a like one concentrated burst. So I have like all this work, sort of research and notes to start with and some character sketches. Um, and I even taken a couple of um, tools from Brennavan, um, who's one of the publishers as well, Lawrence and Gibson, about getting some theme songs that get you into the particular writing of it. 
Um, so one was Gillian Welsh's Everything is Free. Um, and I got to this point where I think the first draft was written in I don't know, 10 days um, from start to finish. So it's not hard, but it's brutal. Um, it's not an easy time because it's sort of, that's about six, 7,000 words a day. Um, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't write like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's always how I've written. That's yeah. how like, I, I did my doctorate as well and, and pretty much everything. Um, but that requires a lot of work at the start and then editing afterwards. And maybe there's something about being able to do all this work in this condensed time um, that allows you to keep keep it in your head. Or maybe it's just incredibly different from what you plan at the start, and then the book comes out and people are like, wow, like you put all this stuff together, but there's a bunch of stuff that's not actually in here, um, a lot of stuff that's missing that was planned. Um, and I didn't even really know what was going to happen at the end until I got like 10 pages into it. Yeah, how do you write? It's like I, a yeah. Well, I write in, I write in fragments, so like I just basically will write things that I find fun at the time, and then kind of jigsaw piece them together into. I I do generally have an idea of what the narrative of the story will be, and then I just like write in fragments of that, and then kind of piece them together, in the order of the story that I'd thought of beforehand, and then try and fill in the gaps mm -hmm. between them, and then like if something isn't working, I'll just take like another thing from another story and sort of jam it in there and yeah that's how I wrote this this book and I for my the the next project that I'm working on I really wanted to write from the beginning and then just write through to the end but I kept on getting distracted by like fun ideas for other chapters <laughs> and jumping forward so I think I, I just have to write in fragments and piece them together mm. which is like probably why this book ended up being this form of like short stories that make a, no a novel because like they were written independently but I kind of found a narrative that went throughout the whole thing. Yeah, definitely got that sense in there. Um, one thing I was oh, wanting to... It's a question. Oh, there is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, there is. I, just want, I just wanted those uh, two excerpts that we've heard feel particularly Wellington. And I'm just wondering if there are universal themes or national themes that, that, that sort of well up from that. Uh, I mean, where would these books be placed? Would they be in the Wellington section or in the New Zealand literature section? Yeah. I mean, mine would be in the Mount Victoria section. <laughs> um, not that I live there anymore, and I don't identify with the place, but I was lucky enough to have a house in that suburb for a while. Uh, people from Christchurch who have read my book think it's set in Christchurch, and people from Wellington think it's in Wellington. So and it's universal. Yeah, uh, well, you know, if those two places make up the entire universe, mm -hmm. then Obviously. yes. Um, but, yeah, the thing is, is, like, I've lived in both those places and kind of wrote about places that are in those places and never thought to explain where it was. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, the family at one stage drive to Naseby, which you can't really do from Wellington, but then another one... He very obviously lives on Mount Victoria. So, <laughs> like, it's just, I never mention what the city is, and I've just hoped that nobody thinks about it hard enough to ask that question. <laughs> I thought about it. I interpreted the stories that mentioned hills, I thought were Wellington, and otherwise I thought it was Christchurch. So. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but he also never really moves. And there's also a, there's a story which is very clearly set in Nelson as well. Um, so, yeah, but... I never really talk about him moving from Christchurch to Wellington, but maybe it's just like a fictional hybrid Wellington, mm. but is in the place where Christchurch is in New Zealand. 
then from that, um, are the interactions between the people some reflection of the human condition? Do you think we all react in the ways that your flatmates interact? I think it's not uh, about, like, I don't think any of those things are, like, so dependent on a city, but I think it is very much New Zealand flatting. Um, and, yeah, like what Murdoch said, I think we do have a sort of distinct flatting culture here, which doesn't really exist in other countries, like maybe in Australia and maybe sometimes in the UK. But um, and, and also, I think the flatting culture that exists now is one that hasn't existed before, where it's like, you know, we're not students partying, we're young professionals or, you know, people with lots of jobs or... Old professionals. Old professionals. Or, like, yeah, or, like, people, you know, I, I think there are plenty of people who can't imagine a future where they're not flatting in a sort of similar situation. The houses might just get a little nicer each time. Hmm. Any, oh, here's an, a question from the front. Because two experienced authors and experienced tenants, I was wondering what, how you would describe a happy flat. How do you get flatmates? Does the landlord choose them for you? Do you help choose them? Choose them by yourselves? Or, um, yeah, I'm just interested. I'd never live in a house where the landlord got to, gets to choose my flatmates. Because uh, they don't have to live with them. They don't have to do that. Uh, in my house, we've changed flatmates a few times this year, and it's always been like a very like kind of committee-focused thing. We have some systems in our flat, like we cook together and you know the way that chores are done and those sorts of things and they are up for discussion but we don't want we wouldn't want someone to move in who was like okay well I'm gonna move in but I'm gonna cook by myself every night because uh, that just wouldn't fit in with the the vibe of the flat so um, yeah it's like you have to work out how to do things by consensus or um, like communally and sometimes that's annoying because sometimes you just don't care uh, and your flatmate is like, what's your opinion on this? And you say, whatever you want. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, do, it does take work. Like it takes, it takes work to do. Are you happy to live with another uh, um, author in your flat? Would it make, or would you prefer to have a of uh, So in my previous house, most of the people were creatives in some sense. Like so there's people who worked in theatre and people who were musicians. And, 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 and there was another author in that flat as well. Uh, and then the one I live in now is mostly young professionals, and it's it changes the vibe a bit. Like in the creative flat, you know, there's usually people up until one in the morning, uh, and at that t at that time I was I was working an office job, so that was kind of annoying. And now I don't have a sort of regular job, and everyone goes to bed at ten. And sometimes it's like, well, I'd like to be able to stay up till one. Uh, and hang out, but no one else is here, <laughs> and everyone wants me to be quiet. So, <laughs> uh, I think yeah, there's something Amon said earlier, which I think is really important as well, which is about those flats where it sort of it sounded like it had broken down, and then people are sort of taking their turns in the kitchen. Um, so the kind of architecture of a house does a lot. Um, fr from ones I've lived in, with either a tiny little shared space with closed doors that are closed off from the kitchen. It can be really hard, especially if there's not a fireplace there, to actually feel like a, a pull out of the bedroom. 
So, but then the best ones I've lived in have had like large common spaces and actually having a fire where you can't just flick it on and off where it heats up the room. And <laughs> at least, yeah. Actually, we only had one in that place, um, but it was right by my room. Um, yeah. My yeah. current flat has two living spaces, which is really nice because, you know, it does, means that you don't have to be stuck in your room, but you can be, you know, there can be multiple things happening in the house at once where you're not confined to your bedroom. Well, that's our time up. But um, I just want to say I've read both these books and that we, we've talked about renting a lot today and they, do, they are about renting, but they're also really funny and really moving and they just take you along and you want to keep reading. They're really good and they're both up here. Um, I encourage you to, to read them. Um, thank you all for coming. And actually, I will pass to my, to my friend here. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Amon and Murdoch. Uh, well Church Commune represent, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, and thanks to all of you guys for coming down today and the publishers as well for engaging with ideas like these and supporting them. Um, have a great day. Mm.